Welcome to the teaching ministry of Paseo del Rey Church in Chula Vista, California. We invite you to open up your Bibles as we join Pastor Gary Bowman for today's message. Okay, so, boy, I found these glasses. I wasn't going to say anything. And um, I thought they were like one time, but I think they're like three time. So I see everything. It is amazing. I see cells and molecular. Anyway. Um, so my name is Bart John Vargas, and I first want to start on Pilar's husband, and I want to start with just saying what a blessing that Paseo del Rey has been to us, to our family. And for me in particular, I want to thank a group of men that meet every Saturday morning. Their name, uh, the group is called Sermon Shapers. It's about a, a group of about five to eight men that they just... They disciple each other, and what they get to do is they get to hear what Gary is going to say the following week. And we sit down, and we examine, and we challenge, and we question, and we suggest different things for Gary to say. And Gary takes all those things, and he ignores them and says whatever he wants. But for me, for me, this was was priceless because, frankly, the passage that we're going to talk about today, it was them that... Uh, they held you. They held me accountable, and they kept my finger in the text. So, I am very, very thankful for that. So, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter six, verse nineteen through twenty-four. It's on page nine seventy-one in the Bibles in front of you. If you're looking at that, in the last few months, we've been going through a series that covers the Sermon on the Mount, and today we're going to talk about two treasures, two visions, two masters, and one. Big choice. So let's just pray real quickly before we get into his word. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, once again, we just come before you and we, like Matt says, just ask that your Holy Spirit be present, that you allow us to examine our lives with all that you have given us, Lord. May everything that flows out of this mouth be yours and may it be glorifying to you. Bless all that are here, and I ask you this in your name, amen. So let's look at verse 19, Matthew 6, 19. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where moth and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is thy darkness. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Money, 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 money. (laughs) How do I get stuck with talking about money? I mean, this is such an unpopular topic in church today. Where is Pastor Gary? Halfway around the earth. He wants no part of this. He wants no part of this at all. But it's not really, if you read the passage, it is not really about money, is it? It is about where our heart is. What has your heart? Money really is an unrighteous commodity, and by that I mean it has no inherent righteousness. It's not born with righteousness. It is not righteous or evil. You can do whatever you want with money, good and bad, but it's our view of money that Jesus is after. It's what we think of it. It's how much we think of it is what we think it can solve, what we trust it to solve. 
So that means even if you don't have money, you can be completely obsessed with it. So all of us are susceptible to this kind of temptation. So before we dig in real quick, let me give you a couple of disclosures. First, today we want to talk about what Jesus's view of wealth is, what the right view of wealth or luxuries is. Not needs. Needs will be talked about next week. This week, it's about what we have in abundance. So if you're sitting there thinking, well, I, I don't really have abundance. I'm, I'm broke. My credit is maxed. I have no extra. I would challenge you to think about to think about what wealth is compared to the rest of the world. That truly, I don't know each of your lives personally, but as a whole, I would say that we are wealthier than the rest of the world. Gary once showed us a website called Global Rich List, and you can type in what you make a year and how that compares to the rest of the world. So I put in there what the minimum wage was last year. If you put in what you made last year, the minimum, if you made minimum wage, you were in the top 3% of the earth. If the world of all the population, you're in the top 3%, which means 97% of the world makes less money than you do. If you made $15 an hour, which is going to be the new minimum wage here in a couple of years, if you make $15 an hour, you are in the top 1%. 99% of the rest of the world makes less money than you and I. If it's your first time here, like Zach said, welcome. We don't typically talk about money on a regular basis, at least not your money. We will stand up here and update you on the church, church's budget, and um, we'll talk to the congregation about that. But then again, I don't think we talk about it enough, not compared to the amount of time that Jesus spent on it. There's some commentaries that say that Jesus talked about money five more times than he talked about anything else in the Bible. In Matthew, he talked about it 100 times. In Luke, 90, 57 in Mark, and 80 in John. And I think he did this because our finances and how they relate to the glory of God is something that we all struggle with at least once in a while. And I don't think that's just at church. If you ask 10 couples what they fight most about, nine will tell you money. Number two reason for divorce is financial spending, problems with financial spending. Number three and four is lack of communication and constant arguing about what money made the top three in each one of those. So is it wrong to have wealth? No, I don't think that's what this passage is inferring. God made several people and righteous people very, very wealthy. Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, Solomon, Job, Dave, David. It's okay to have nice things. It's okay to enjoy them. It's okay to work, to have retirement plans, to save for a future. There's nothing wrong with that. Look at 1 Timothy 5.8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied his faith and he is worse than an unbeliever. Some versions say infidel. In regards to saving for your future, Proverbs 6, 6 through 8. Go to the Anto Slugger, consider her ways and be wise. Without any chief or officer, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. There is so much wealth building advice in Proverbs. So I, I don't think that God considers wealth a bad thing. So let's look at verse 19. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth. So first of all, it starts off with do not, which means Jesus is not making a recommendation. Jesus is giving us a mandate. And if you look at the word store up and treasure in Greek, store up is thesarizo and treasure is thesaroas, which means they have the same root. So literally what Jesus is saying is do not treasure for yourself treasures. Do not fixate your life on what is of this earth. Do not fixate yourself on the treasures of this earth. Why? Because they're subject to risk. They're subject to loss by what 
moths, vermin, and thieves. And that really was a reference of wealth in their time. Cloth, gain, uh, sorry, cloth, grain, and gold. Cloth to the people in that time was a very, very valuable commodity. When described in Zechariah 14, 14, it says, And the wealth of that time and the surrounding nations will be gathered in gold, silver, and garments. Second Kings 5, 5 talks about the 10 changes of clothes that Naaman offered Elijah if he would cure him of leprosy. Judges 14, 12, Samson's bed against the Philistines revolved around 30 articles of clothing. Isaac gave a beautiful cloak to Joseph. The Israelites received gold and clothing when they left Egypt from the Egyptians. But see, people would keep these clothings as an idea of where their security would be in troubled times. So the more clothes you had, the more secure you were. But, but what really happens to clothes when we store them up? What happens when we just stuff clothes in a closet and we don't look at them for 10, 15, 20 years? Has anybody ever pulled out clothes from 20 years ago? They shrink, right? I think. I don't know. I, I put on a pair of pants and it was, yeah, right? Okay, so maybe you had the same thing. I put on a pair of pants and it was like I was putting on a wetsuit. It was crazy. I was like, ugh, ugh, ugh. No, in that time, probably wasn't about size, but they didn't have cedar closets. They didn't have mothballs. It was about moths and vermin. If you stored it up, they would get to it, right? But Moths wouldn't take what you wore, right? Nobody was walking down the street and go, darn moth. Moths only eat what is stagnant. It's not wrong to have wealth, but if it is just hoarded up, it doesn't glorify him. And grain has the same effect. Keep enough of it on hand and it will spoil. Store it up and rats will find their place. India, which is the top, it's in the top 100 poorest countries in the world loses 15% of its, gain, of its grain to vermin and 6 million tons, 6 million tons to spoilage. And why? Because they have it stored up and the people that have it won't give it to the people that don't. If it's not moving, it will spoil. If you go to your uh, state website, and I just picked Kentucky, it says infestations rarely happen in the field. It's when we store grains for six months or longer that it's subject to infestation. So what are some of the treasures in our day? What are some of the things that you and I look at treasures? I read an assessment in a publication which puts earthly treasures in this perspective, and hopefully it'll help you. It's about a couple. Their names are Mr. and Mrs. Thing, and they measure success by what we would call a thingometer. There is Mr. Thing sitting down on a luxurious and very expensive thing, almost hidden by a large number of other things. Things to sit on and things to sit at, things to cook on and things to eat from, all shiny and new. Things, things, things. Things for the long hot summer and things for the short cold winter, things for the big thing in which they live in, things for the garden, things for the deck, things for the kitchen, things for the bedroom. Things on four wheels and things on two wheels and things to pull on the thing with four wheels and things to put on top of the thing on four wheels, things things, things. And there in the middle are Mr. and Mrs. Things, smiling and pleased as punch with things, thinking of more things to add to their things, secure in their castle of things. Well, Mr. Thing, I have some bad news for you. I just want you to know that your things can't last. They're going to pass. They're going to be an end to them. You know, maybe an error in judgment or a temporary loss in concentration, or maybe you'll just pass them off to the second-hand thing dealer. Or maybe they'll wind up a mass of mangled metal being towed off to the thing yard. And 
What about those things in your house? Well, it's time for bed. Make sure you lock the door so some thing taker doesn't take them away. And that's the way life goes. And someday when you die, they'll put one thing in the box. You. You. Now, I read this on the way to Costco, and it absolutely ruined my trip. (laughs) It was... (laughs) All I did was go down there and go, things to wear and things to eat and things to eat on and things to... My wife ended up kicking me out. She made me go sit in the car. She goes, go sit on that thing with four wheels. Enough. (laughs) But this was written 40 years ago. Has anything changed? I mean, it's all quite silly when you look at it, right? We spend a part of our life... The major, maybe the majority for some of you, revolved around the acquisition of things. And people in Jesus' time had the same issue. The Pharisees were obsessed with things. They were obsessed with their wealth. Luke 16, 14, the Pharisees who loved money, some versions say coveted or desired money, heard all this and they sneered at Jesus. And this is right after Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. They crossed their arms and they closed their hearts because they were known to be wealthy and they defended it. They said, well, I worked hard for it and this was God's blessing because I was righteous. So basically God owed them. He was simply paying them back for what was their due. I mean, this is somewhat the prosperity gospel that you hear today, right? Do good and good things will happen to you. So not much has changed, but what does Jesus say is going to happen to those things? He doesn't say maybe, but will. Vermin, moths, thieves, they will destroy. Simply put, everything, everything that you own, the second it's made, it gets older. Most everything you have is a depreciating asset. And everything is subject to risk and loss on earth. And ultimately, nothing on earth lasts. So if that's the first kind of treasure... What is the second kind of treasure? And really more importantly, because Jesus wants us to strive for what moth and vermin don't destroy and what thieves don't steal. How do we get, how do we get that second kind of treasure? So could it be our good works? Could it be our good works? And please, what I'm not, I'm not saying that good works Give us our salvation, right? Yes, we are saved by grace. Grace not by ourselves, but a gift of God should none boast. But are there different rewards in heaven? Are good works done for the glory of God rewarded to us? Let's read 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15. Their works will be shown for what it is because that day will bring it to light. It'll be revealed with fire, and fire will test each of the quality of that person's work. And if, the, and if it's been built up, if what has been built up survives, the builder will receive a reward. And if it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet he will be saved, even though it's one escaping through flames. So for some of us, that is going to be one heck of a bonfire because of what we have here that we fixate on. Because I do believe that our spiritual consequences, there are spiritual consequences for what we do. Timothy 6, 18 through 19. Command them to be good and be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share that in this way, laying up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming of age. Matthew 10, 42. For whosoever gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water because he is my disciple, I truly say to you, he will by no means 
lose his reward. Colossians 3, 23 through 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Not because you're going to get something now. Verse 24, knowing that with the Lord, from, from the Lord, you will receive your inheritance as your great reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. What we do for him will last. It's when we share the gospel regardless of what happens, whether it's accepted or whether we're ridiculed, that will last. It's doing something good and being treated harshly for it. That will last. Sometimes it's in us saying life is unfair, right? When we say life is unfair, in that comment, there really is just this underlining feeling that, that you will never see the, the earthly just results for your good works. And you may not. Gary, two weeks ago from Matt 6, 4, Matthew 6, 4, but God, your Father, sees the good that you do in secret, and he will reward you. Look at it this way. The God of the universe who forgives us our sins and sees Jesus' righteousness when he looks at us also keeps score of what we do for the kingdom of God. Not because he has to, but because he wants to. He wants to reward us, and he will, but it just might not be on your schedule. It might not be right now. It'll be in heaven, and that's what faith is. We do what we do because we believe what we believe. If we don't believe this, then why, why do anything that we're not immediately rewarded for? Right? That was the Pharisees' perspective. That was why they prayed out loud and they gave in front of others and they publicly fasted. I mean, we don't do things that blatantly, but is there a reason that organizations struggle with a turnover and volunteering? What do volunteers say when they quit? They say things like, well, I wasn't appreciated. Nobody said I, I did a good job or I didn't really see a change in who I was helping. Or they don't see immediate growth, so they quit. I mean, don't get me wrong, growth is good, advancement of the kingdom is great, but may it be done just for the glory of God and then stop. Because when we, when we, when we identify or if our identity is wrapped up in what somebody says about what we do every time we do it, that's going to be an emotional roller coaster. If you wrap yourself up in the success or growth of a ministry, you have the chance of being prideful when it goes up, and then you get depressed when it goes down. So what if I was to ask you to, to witness to a group for a dozen or more years without one result? Would you do it? Would you do it because God had asked you to do it? And because he did, our reward is already accounted for in heaven, regardless of what God decides to show us now. I mean, look at Jeremiah and Isaiah. I mean, these people... These people talked to an entire, an entire generation, a nation asking them to rep repent and never saw the result in their lifetime. Was their life well lived? I took a course in perspective and you hear about missionaries going off to a piece of dirt that none of you have ever heard of to learn a language that we will never use for six, seven years with no converts just to learn the language. And then spending another five, six years to translate the New Testament. And maybe they'll have some converts, but there's no guarantee. Maybe they'll have some converts. And they come back and some people may say, you wasted the best years of your life. 
And they'll quickly turn around and say, no, God gave me the best years of my life. Because they know. They know what God can do with one seed. And they can envision that fruit out 100, 200, 500, 1,000 years into the future. They know their reward is in heaven. Luke 16, 9 says, use your wealth to make friends for the kingdom of God that they may greet you in heaven. Imagine what that'll be like for those missionaries. Imagine for those of you who go and those of us who send that through eternity we are greeted time and time again by those that we had a part to share in the gospel. So I have a slide that might represent a little bit, kind of give you some perspective on time. So that's us. And I just want to say, we are blessed with so much talent here. Um, as you look at this, this is, this is Matt doing this, and he did it in like six minutes. And I, I was like on this piece of paper with a pencil and a couple of X's and a stick figure, and he did this, and I thought this was really nice. But okay, so look at yourself, and then look at all the stuff that you can acquire in about an 80-year time span. And think about this more as a, as, a, as a Google map, right? So as you Google out, and you go out from 80 years to 500 years, to 10,000 years, to a million years. So where are we there? Like, are you fixated on that speck that happens to be your life and your stuff in comparison to eternity? It just, it just puts everything, I think, in perspective. And, and really, that's what I want to say is, is your perspective on wealth temporal? Is it on that? Or is the perspective in your life on that? And it's never-ending, right? It just keeps going and going and going. So thank you, Carl. So let's continue. Verse 21. For where your treasure is, that is where your heart is also. And this is also upside down. It's upside down according to the world, right? Because Jesus says treasure and then heart. And the world says the complete opposite. They say, no, no, no. Your heart comes first. Follow your heart. Whatever you feel, that you should do. Right? Don't do anything unless it feels right. But Jesus says the opposite. He turns around. He says, no, where your treasure is, that is where your heart is. And what he's saying is there's action before emotion. There's obedience before emotion. Giving feels really good. It feels really, really good. But you're not going to know that until you do it. If you wait to feel that you have enough to give, there will always be something else to buy. If you wait till you feel like you have enough free time, you will never volunteer. Start living a life that's focused more on the kingdom of heaven than on earth, and your heart will follow. Can this be done without Christ? No. Because the things we're talking about without Christ make no sense. And why would I invest in a future? Why would I sacrifice now for a future that I don't believe in? Made me think about my first job when I was 14 or 15. It was close to full time. I was excited. It was at the Hungry Howies down like three blocks from my house. And uh, I started working full time. And a guy came up to me and he goes, hey, man, now that you're working full time. And I don't know what the labor laws were, but they let me work full time. And he goes, now that you're working full-time, uh, you need to start putting money away. 
And I said, yeah, man, I got to start putting money away. He goes, all right. He goes, you got to invest in a 401k. And I said, well, okay, what's a 401k? He goes, all right, you got to put $30 away a week. And if you do that, you're going to have a million bucks when you're 65. And I'm like, man, you had me at a million bucks and you lost me at age 65. Because I am 14 years old. So that means I have to live four more times in order to see this money. And I said, is it a guarantee? And he goes, well, it kind of is. And I said, well, what does this part mean? And he reads, past performance is no guarantee of future results. I said, what does that mean? He goes, well, that means you could lose some of your principal. And I was like, ah, yeah. I don't really believe in that. I don't even know if I'm going to get to age 65. So what did I invest in? I invested in the now, which happened to be a 7-Eleven. So I had Slurpees every day. <laughs> I only made $2.90, right? This guy wanted me to invest 10 hours of my week every week. So anyway, uh, let me ask you something about your heart. What occupies your thoughts when you have nothing else to do? That is what has your heart. What are things that we measure others by? Because what we measure others by, that may be our treasure. And lastly, what do you, what do you know that you cannot be happy without? Those all could be treasures in our life. And I just ask that we examine ourselves there. So let's move on. Vision. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. If the eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light within you is darkness, how great is your darkness? And I remember in the group, we're like, is anyone else confused by these two verses? Because Gary's not here. We could skip these and just move on to two masters. But I thought maybe instead we'd look at two different versions. We'd look at the living Bible translation. And that says, if your eye is pure, there will be sunshine in your soul. But if your eye is clouded with evil thoughts and desires, you're, you are in deep spiritual darkness. And oh, how deep that darkness can be. And then let's look at the message version. Your eyes are the window into your body. If your eyes are wide in wonder and belief, your body fills up with light. If you live squinty-eyed in greed and distrust, your body is a dank cellar. So really, your eye, and it's, we've heard this before, right? The eye is the window of the soul. In this case, the eye is the window to your heart. In Greek, the word healthy eye was translated to generous eye. In Greek, it would mean generous eye. So it's, it's, if your eyes are fixed on the eternal view, if you are generous with your resources, your whole outlook, your whole outlook will reflect that. I mean, we know givers, and they just they have a different outlook in life. A 2013 study says that if you are generous with your time, it counters depression. And volunteering four hours a week, so they say, reduces your chances of high blood pressure. It's, it's the whole outlook that giving gives you. And the inverse is the unhealthy eye or the evil eye. It's the opposite. It's a man that has a poor focus on what really matters and his face and his heart reflect it. Look at Proverbs 23, 6. Do not eat bread of a man who gives you the evil eye. For as he thinketh in his heart, he is. He says, eat and drink, but his heart is not with you. So see the connection with the eye and the heart. Proverbs 28, and, uh, verse 22. He that hastens to be rich has an evil eye and considers not the poverty that shall come upon him. And what does this lead to? 
If your light is darkness, how great is that darkness? If you look at James 5, 1 through 6, you can read it later. It details this process. It goes from coveting to never having enough to cheating on your employees to others, to abusing the poor, and ultimately murder. Jesus' commentary was directed to the early church, not the Pharisees. So we are all susceptible to this kind of temptation. It is all of us. Read the story of Ananias and Sapphira. These are two church members who lied to the Holy Spirit because they were fixated on their wealth and they died for it. Let's move on. Verse 24, two masters. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So right off the bat, you cannot serve two masters. Now you may say, no, I, I work two jobs. I can, I can serve two employers. And No, that's employers. This says masters. And you may say, well, no, I live with my wife and my mother-in-law. I can serve two masters. It can be done. <laughs> And if you look at what Jesus uses as the word for serve, he uses duleo, where we get the word dulos, which means bond slave. So it literally reads, no man can be a bond slave to two masters. Your life is dedicated to that master. There is no sharing. Master denotes absolute ownership. Look at it this way. Right off the bat, as humans, God is our owner by right of creation. And if you're a follower in Christ... If you're a Christian, then God is your owner by right of purchase. We have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. What does Paul say in Romans 6? We are no longer slaves of sin. We've been purchased, but we are now slaves of righteousness. So if you think you can serve two masters, you're fooling yourself. And it's human nature to want to do so. You may get get that uncomfortable feeling when we say the word slave, but Maybe it's because the world tells you that you answer to no one, right? That you are the master of your own fate. Or like kids say once in a while, right? You're not the boss of me. I'm the boss of me. And that's okay. This verse says, look, you either say to God, you are my master or anything else. Because to try to do both, you will start to despise one. Examine your heart with this. If if on Sunday or at any other time when people start talking about giving money, does your body tense up? Or when the church starts talking about something that may impose on your life and on the time that you have, does your mind start going into auto-rationalization mode and you start thinking about all the excuses as to why you can't be involved? One of the saddest things I heard was from a church consultant about a dozen years ago. And it said, well, we realize that the most we can ask from a congregation is one extra hour, one night a week, apart from one hour and one hour alone on Sunday. Why? Because people have other obligations. They have busy lives. My wife made a comment at a, at a conference that she was speaking to a couple of weeks ago to a group of women, and it was on the topic of serving in the church. And she said, the unemployment rate in church should be zero. Right? We should all serve. There, should, there, is, there, is, there is room for anyone that wants to serve in whatever capacity, and not just under this building, but in our community and in our jobs and in our families. 
And if the unemployment rate was zero at Paseo del Rey, what would that look like in Chula Vista? What a difference would we make for the glory of God if we were full-time? I think that would look awesome. So a couple more applications and then we'll close. We cannot have God as our master and choose to go on living as if he doesn't exist or that if he was made for you instead of you for him. In a book by Mary Shelley called Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein is sitting in this cave and he's having a conversation with a creature whom he created. And this creature is arguing with him because he says Victor or that he deserves to be happy and that's Victor's job and by doing Victor's job he needs to create another being for him and when Victor disagrees the creature gets violent and he tells him well I've already killed half of your family and then he threatens to kill the rest of it and then he says this chilling line from the book he says yes Victor you are my creator but I am your master and I wonder if I do that I give God the credit for his creation I praise him for it I but I live as if I'm the master. I, I thank him for all the blessings and all the gifts that he gives me, and then I hold on to them like they're mine, all mine. <laughs> like I'm not going to lose them anyway. So let me finish with the eternal case for choosing the right master. Because this is not just a daily decision. This is an eternal one. Christ is saying, choose the master and reap the eternal dividends that that master provides. Choose Christ as your master, and you will have whatever he is capable of giving you throughout eternity, in eternity. Choose yourself or any version of yourself that you please, and you will have that for eternity. Void of God. Void of anything that God is currently blessing this earth with. Love, light, kindness, satisfaction, goodness, joy, music, laughter. What do you have left? You could have the biggest house and you could have all the money in the world, but instead of light, you would be living in a place of utter darkness. Instead of kindness, there would be cruelty. You would never be satisfied. There'd be no joy, no laughter left to your own devices because you got exactly what you wanted. So do we live our lives as if none of what we have is truly ours? Because we were made to serve. We were made to have a master. But in our daily life, as well as our eternal, we will choose one and ignore the other. Let's pray. Lord, I, <clears throat> I just thank you for this time together. And I ask, Lord, that I pray this for myself more than anyone else. May I examine the things that you have given in my life and may I use them for your glory, Lord. I pray that you turn our hearts from, from this and towards you because this is just stuff. It's all just stuff. May our attitude with what we're given show others who we serve. May all that we do, Lord, glorify you. I pray these things in your name. Amen.